week we started off nice and happy and we got introduced to Paul and, and what was really important to him as he wrote this book. And we had this lovely verse to kind of center around where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel or the good news, the story of Jesus, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And it's a very nice, uplifting thought, isn't it? It's kind of one of those thoughts that are like, you know, I, I like this. I can resonate with this. I can put this on my flag and fly it around. And I'm all very, very happy. Well, hold on to your hats because as soon as he says that, he is now going in verse 18, he's going to start getting deeper and darker and more depressing. <laughs> and he's really going to put that whole I'm not ashamed part to the test. And we'll see how we feel about some of the things that he is going to say next. So I'm going to read from you from uh, verse 18. I'm not going to use the clicker on this one so you can follow along with the, as I'm reading. All right. Jumps right in immediately, right off the bat. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Well, isn't this, isn't this a nice start? It's really sort of getting us, you know, warming us up here. It's just going to get better. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what is being made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And now he's really going to get into it. It says, therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts through sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is to be praised forever. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Is anyone sweating yet? All right, good. Here we go. Verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Well, gosh, Paul, don't sugarcoat it. Tell us exactly how you feel here. Whew! That's an intense piece of scripture, isn't it? It certainly seems a little bit of a negative turn from our boy Paul here, who is supposed to be talking about the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. What's going on here? What is he doing? Why is he dragging us through the dirt like this? But you see, we've got to understand this passage in the flow of what Paul is doing. From the beginning all the way through, you see, his main point is talking about the grace of God. He says, 
We live by faith, not by our efforts. We are saved by what God has done for us. So before we can understand that truly, he's got to set the stage of how messed up we truly were and are. We've got to kind of go down to these depths to figure out how much of our separation we have from God so that we can truly understand and appreciate God bringing us back up into connection with him. Does that make sense? Good. Okay, we're getting a few nods. That's fine. That's all good. So the other thing we need to remember is that um, God is, uh, sorry, Paul is talking here to a church that is made up of Jewish Christians and non-Jewish or Gentile Christians. And so he, when he sort of takes us through a little bit of a view of how the world is, he's first going to show us how bad the non-Jewish or Gentile world is. And then next week, we're going to have a look at how the Jews probably weren't as any better than them either. So no one's, no one's free from uh, criticism there. And so what we're going to do, the good news is coming. There is good news in the book. We're only in chapter one. Bear that in mind. But first, we have to understand how bad it got to understand what God really did for us. Now, the other thing you may have picked up as I was reading here is that this is something of a controversial passage of Scripture, yeah? It is something of a passage that not everyone, even within Christianity, is happy about. It is not something that everyone agrees on. In fact, it has become the center point for some very heated and unfortunately very violent debates between the church and society, especially that one bit in the middle there that no one really wants to talk about. But the thing is, Paul really doesn't make any excuses or apologies about talking about these things, even in the harsh sort of language that he talks about them in. However, there is an important point that I need us to understand here when we're reading Romans 1. And that is the context. This is Paul, church leader, apostle, right? Writing a letter to a Christian church in Rome about the world around them. It is not a letter to the world around them. You get that distinction? So while truth is truth, and Paul's not going to hide anything about what he believes, we have to understand that this letter was intended to be read and digested within a Christian community of people who understood who God was and had a common worldview about him. So again, we're not holding back on what truth is, is but the way that it is discussed inside and outside the church community is critically important. Romans chapter 1 is not an example of the kind of conversation Paul would have had with the outside community. He is not going to go out into the marketplace and use this kind of language. In fact, if you want to see what kind of language Paul uses, you can go to Acts chapter 14 or Acts chapter 17, where he does go out into the marketplace and he talks with much more of a sense of, you could use the words compassionate or respectful language. He uses it because he's bridging a gap between people. So the point here is, 
while we can look at this passage and we can see the way that God views the world, what we should not be doing is mining this chapter for quotes to give to the world. Right? So we are not using this as the language that we are going to express this theology or this understanding of God to the world. So the point here is, if you go running around telling people that I've got a depraved mind and shameful lust, you're not helping. In fact, you're undermining the very passage you are trying to quote. In fact, doubly so, because the point of this passage is not so much this laundry list of sins and activities that Paul lists here, that is part of it, but it, the point of this passage is the source of all of those things. And that comes in verses 18 and 19, where it says the wrath or the anger or judgment of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. This is, this is the center point of the passage. Everything else flows on from this concept. Paul is making a very specific and admittedly a very controversial statement. And he is saying that those who are not within the community of God, those who do not have their trust, in Jesus, stand at fundamental odds with God. Fundamentally, they are at odds with God and stand under His judgment. And it is not because of ignorance, but of rebellion and rejection. This may not sit very well with us. It's hard for us sometimes to kind of say, well, hang on a second, what about people who didn't even hear about God? What about those who lived on faraway islands? You know, you've heard this argument. What about the ones who live deep in the Amazon jungle? They've never heard about Jesus. They've never heard about God. How can God have, how can God have judgment against them? They had no idea. But that's Paul's point. They did. And his point here is they should have known about God because God has made himself plain to them. In verse 20, it says, the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature of being clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, we don't get a lot of details about what exactly God was expecting of people. I mean, they wouldn't have known his laws. They wouldn't necessarily have even known his name but there is an understanding here that when people see the complexity, the power of God's creation, they should see something there that is beyond that creation. Something there that must be bigger, must be more powerful, must be this infinite, a true God. A true God. But they didn't. Instead, listen to what Paul says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being or birds or animals and reptiles. My son Liam was probably like, well, birds, I mean, that's okay, right? <laughs> if you've ever, um, you've ever watched the Moon Knight series, Disney Plus, 
One person, oh my goodness, Disney is going down the tubes. Like, well, you gotta, you know, you gotta put your hand up. Yeah. So Moon Knight, we watched that, and it's really interesting because it gives a depiction of the Egyptian gods, right? You and I can have a conversation about this. The Egyptian gods here, which would have been around at the time of Paul as well as the Greek slash Roman gods as well. And what really strikes me about them, apart from the fact that they've just picked animals and associated gods with animals like crocodiles and hippos and this weird little beak thing, um, is that they're kind of, what's the word, pathetic, right? I mean, it's like the way they see it in this TV show and the way that the, the sort of religions work is, I mean, they're big, they're powerful, but they kind of still need humanity in order to operate. They kind of needed humans to be able to do stuff. In the Greek religion, there was this idea that, that gods needed human worship or otherwise they couldn't survive. It's very finite, isn't it? And so Paul is looking around here and he's sitting there in his coffee shop, he's sipping his coffee, looking around at all of these religions and these sort of weak gods that need humans, and he's thinking they gave up the immortal God, the God who created the universe just by talking, for this? This is a bit silly. Why would they do that? Why would they give up this amazing big God for these little gods that can't survive without each other and can't even survive without us? What do you think? If you could sum up their sort of motives in one word, what do you reckon? Anyone? You don't have to. Ignorance? Paul would probably say no, actually. <laughs> he would say they knew something in them, I think, sorry? Self-serving, Self yes. And I think possibly a, another word that kind of captures that is control. People wanted control. See, a crocodile god or a hippo god is something I can get my head around. I can understand these deities when we create them to look like people or to look like animals. I can understand them if they have power but have limits as well. I can understand them if they need to be part of a community because I need to be part of a community. I'm not self-sufficient as well. And so we kind of kind of created the system where they can understand it, which is a form of control. They can control this. And we're still at it, aren't we? We're still at it. We're still exchanging the immortality, the awesomeness, the unlimitedness of God for lesser explanations of how our world works. We are now using, I mean, well, in Western society especially, we're using science and logic and what is labeled as higher thinking to explain the world so that we can shut off who God is. If we're faced with the complexity and the enormity and the amazingness of creation, and yet we shut that aside so that we can pursue higher thinking and let the world create itself. Now, I am not... Uh, 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 I'm not against logic or science, so don't get me wrong here. I actually love both of those things. But here's the thing. When we say 
that nothing can exist or nothing could have happened unless it fits logic or science. We are placing them in a position of authority as a God in our lives. It must be that that is the highest authority. That is a fundamental rejection of the all-powerful, almighty God. Yes? And that, Paul says, is why our world is at its core at odds with the Lord. And it does not matter how good people are. It doesn't matter how much money they give away. It doesn't matter how much they dedicate their lives to serving the community, to helping people. These are beautiful, beautiful things. But if in their hearts they have rejected God as the primary authority of who they are and who their lives are, they have rejected the most truest most basic, most real truth of the universe. They have rejected God. And nothing they can do can cover that gap. Nothing they can do can make up for that deficit. Of course, most people don't do the nice things either. <laughs> I think we're probably um, aware that as I was listening through some of those things that Paul is talking about, that there's plenty of that going on in the world. We're rife with a whole list of destructive attitudes and behaviors. You see, as Paul talks about that decision to reject God, to lay claim control for themselves, this leads to this progression, or maybe a better word would be regression of morality. See, Paul says that as, as they rejected God, God gave them over which is a really interesting phrase. He allowed them to continue on. It's almost like he let them play out the string. Let them go and chase what they wanted. You're going to reject me? Then go see what this does for you. And as they did, they see all of these bad things come into play. They pushed God away. They started to spiral away from him. They started to push outside of the boundaries, or God's boundaries for relationships. They started to let their minds go to places that God did not want their minds to go, where they started like letting greed and all of these other things start to come in. They gave up that ethical thinking and pursued exactly what they wanted, and it led to that whole laundry list of sins. But one, I want you to understand something here. I want you, oh, sorry. There we go. I want to understand that there is a trajectory at play here as well. I think that's really helpful for us when we look at our society now. So, for example, when, you, um, when he is talking, when Paul talks about he, God gave them over, that rejection, we've got to rewind the tape a little bit and go back to the book of Genesis. All right, so in Genesis 11, verses 1 to 2, we kind of see that basically everybody in the world at that point was living in one spot. They were all together, they spoke the same language, and they were all there. And then, as we know from the story in Genesis chapter 11, God scattered them. He changed, he confused their languages because they were trying to take over God and sort of sent them out into the world, which was basically his original idea for humanity anyway, go and fill the world. So he sent them all out. Now, when they scattered, that was the beginning of different 
religions and languages and cultures, wasn't it? That's where we started to spread out a little bit. Okay? So it's important to remember that at that point, everyone had a common and accurate understanding of who God was. They're all together in one place. They know God. And yet, when they start to break away from God, as they scatter out into different parts of the world, you can see a divergence beginning between man's way and God's way. All right, well now fast forward to Paul's time and that divergence has grown, hasn't it? So things that would have been acts of rebellion back in um, the time of Babel, have now become basically sort of fairly commonly accepted realities. Uh, Religions have established themselves now, and the different um, social attitudes and behaviors towards things like relationships are already started to become fluid and diverse, even if they're not necessarily publicly accepted. Well, then you fast forward another 2,000 years to where we are today, and you can see that the divergence between our way of doing things or the human experience and God's plan has become so big now. And we have to understand that that changes the conversation, doesn't it? Because at the beginning over here in Babel, we have things that are described as rebellions and rejections of God. Well, by the time we get to Paul, they can really only be described as choices. They're not necessarily rebellions against God actively, or at least in their own mind. These are just choices. And then by the time we get to where we are, we describe these things, and this is just the way I am. There's no control over this. In fact, some of these things come predisposed in people. And so there's, there's not even a sense of choice there, is there? And so it becomes very difficult for us to kind of talk about that divergence as being something God doesn't like. And people don't understand why would people be against some of these things? Why, why would anyone be against these things? Because they're so ingrained and entrenched in the way that our culture is. And so as we approach Romans 1 in this context, we have to understand how the progression of human experience has changed this conversation. And that's probably why we struggle with verses like this, where Paul says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these three things, but also approve of those who practice them. Of course, we know our culture, as there's a lot of things that our culture is for, that God is not for, and People celebrate when people take that path. Okay, so we understand that aspect of it. But we really struggle to blame people for what they don't seem to really even understand or be able to choose. Have you felt that struggle? That struggle in, in, in this idea of the way that the culture views certain things and the way the Bible views certain things, and we just feel like this doesn't seem fair. But Paul... Again, he argues differently. He says that while these attitudes have grown in society and become more and more entrenched, there still has been this path 
God has still revealed his path the whole way through. Whether it's through the story of God's people or as we mentioned before, through creation itself. God has revealed himself and he's revealed his path and it is always there, always calling to and challenging people to see and accept who God is and to pursue who God is. It's always been there. As time has progressed, the divergence has grown and shifting from one path to the other has become harder and more complicated. And it involves so many different things now. But that choice to choose God's way has still been there for everyone and is still there for everyone. And because of this, Paul says, people are without excuse. It's kind of gloomy. It's kind of depressing. Where does that even leave us? And it leaves us sitting in the middle of a broken world that we, that we are forced to recognize and acknowledge is sitting under the judgment of God. It forces us to see the world the way God is seeing it. Not because they don't know, but because they do and have rejected him. It's a hard place to sit. If it feels heavy, it should. There should always be that tension. We should sit in a place where it's uncomfortable to be in a world that does not know God and is expected to know God. It's, it's hard to sit in a space where our minds don't understand why God would expect that. And yet this Bible that he has given us tells us that he does. That tension should be there. It should make us feel desperate for a solution. Desperate for something, someone to come in and, and, and fix this and save them and, and shake the world and say, look, Is there anything God can do? Hmm. Paul says, why, yes. Actually, there was. That's his point. That's the point of this whole book. He says, this is why I'm writing. This is why I've given my life to this thing called the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Because, as he says, it is the power to bring salvation to everyone who believes. This is it. This is the solution. This is the bridge that God has built between the human experience and what God wants us to be. He has given us a portal to go from this place to where we need to be, to the truest expression of humankind. He has given us this if only people would believe. If only they would put their trust in him. But they aren't. <laughs> they aren't putting their trust in him. They aren't seeing it. They were seeing this community that we're living in and, and they've rejected God and they've rejected Jesus and partly that's our fault and partly because they just want to reject. But 
there's this like they're struggling their way through life and they don't have the help from the very one who's created them, the very one who can give them everything that they need. And we're just like, can you see? Can you see? See and believe. How can we help them? I mean, what if? What if there was a community of Jesus followers that God planted right in the community to help them? Wouldn't that be amazing if God gathered some Christians together and put them in there to help? What if those people in that community committed their lives to living God's path, to to sacrificing maybe what they want in order to follow what they believe is best, that they'd be willing to show the world what it looks like to live under the loving submission, under the loving kingship of God. Wouldn't that be incredible? And what if this community of people, what if this community of Jesus followers loved each other so extravagantly, so fiercely, so passionately that they would give their lives to each other so that it would stir something in the hearts of the community, that people outside of the, of the community would look in and say, Man, that's amazing. I want that. What if, what if that community of Jesus followers dedicated their lives to going out into their neighborhoods, out amongst the people that they know, and would love and serve them and share Jesus with them in a powerful and relatable way? Boy, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it be something if God did that. Jesus is the solution, the only solution for our world. We have that. We have that story. So if you think that Church Northwest is a nice place to come and sing some songs, read some Bible, and that's it, it's not it. We exist for so much more. Not less, but more. We exist to be a light, to be power, to be an example and to be beauty to the community around us so that they will see and desire and become part of the family of God. So that they too will have the hope in the future that we have. I'm so thankful for this community. I'm thankful for what God is doing here. Let's get into it.